0: Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I'll be reading from a book written by Josephus about 2,000 years ago. The title of the book is The Wars of the Jews. It's part of Josephus' corpus, the different writings that he did, which include the life of Flavius Josephus, so it's Josephus' autobiography, The Antiquities of the Jews, which is a lengthy history book of the Jews going back to uh, Genesis, really. And it's a very lengthy book. But this one, I'm going to just read book five and six from the wars of the Jews. And book five starts with the uh, coming of Titus to besiege Jerusalem. And Josephus is an important historical figure. He mentions Jesus Christ in, in one of his writings, stating, quote, Now there was about this time Jesus, a wise man, if it be lawful to call him a man, for he is a doer of wonderful works a teacher of such men as received the truth with pleasure. He drew over to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. He was Christ. And when Pilate, at the suggestion of the principal men amongst us, had condemned him to the cross, those that loved him at the first did not forsake him, for he appeared to them alive again the third day, as the divine prophets had foretold these and ten thousand other wonderful things concerning him. And the tribe of Christians so named from him are not extinct at this day." And Christ mentions a number of things about the destruction of Jerusalem. Here's Matthew 24, 1 and 2. Quote, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came to him for to shew him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said unto them, See ye not all these things? Verily I say unto you, There shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. And then from Luke twenty three twenty eight to 31. But Jesus turning unto them said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children, for behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, "Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck." Then they shall begin to say to the mountains, "Fall on us," and to the hills, "Cover us," for if they do these things in a green tree, what shall be done in the dry? So this is a reading from Josephus's *The Wars of the Jews* or *The History of the Destruction of Jerusalem*, Book Five, which contains the interval of near six months from the coming of Titus besiege Jerusalem to the great extremity to which the Jews were reduced. Chapter 1. Concerning the seditions at Jerusalem and what terrible miseries afflicted the city by their means. When therefore Titus had marched over that desert which lies between Egypt and Syria in the manner aforementioned, he came to Caesarea, having resolved to set his forces in order at that place before he began the war. Nay, indeed, while he was assisting his father at Alexandria in settling that government which had been newly conferred upon them by God, it so happened that the sedition at Jerusalem was revived, and parted into three factions. That one faction fought against the other, which partition in such evil cases may be said to be a good thing, and the effect of divine justice. Now as to the attack the zealots made upon the people, in which I esteem the beginning of the city's destruction, it hath been already explained after an accurate manner, as also once it arose and how great a mischief it was increased. But for the present sedition, one should not mistake if he called it a sedition begotten by another sedition, and to be like a wild beast grown mad, which for want of food from abroad fell now upon eating its own flesh. For Eleazar, the son of Simon, who made the first separation of the zealots from the people, and made them retire into the temple, appeared very angry at John's insolent attempts, which he made every day upon the people. For this man never left off murdering, but the truth was that he could not bear to submit to a tyrant who set up after him. So he, being desirous of gaining the entire tower, power and dominion to himself, revolted from John, and took to his assistance Judas the son of Chelsea, and Simon the son of Ezron, who were among the men of greatest power. There also was with him Hezekiah, son of Chobar, a person, person of eminence. Each of these were followed by a great many of the zealots, these seized upon the inner court of the temple and laid their arms upon the holy gates and over the holy fronts of that court and because they had plenty of provisions, they were of good courage, for there was a great abundance of what was consecrated to sacred uses, and they scrupled not the making use of them yet they were yet were they afraid on account of their small number, and when they had laid up their arms there, they did not stir from the place they were in now, as to John, what advantage he had above Eleazar and the multitude of his followers the like disadvantage he had in the situation he was in. Since he had his enemies over his head, and he could not make any assault upon them without some terror, so was his anger too great to let them be at rest. Nay, although he suffered more mischief from Eleazar and his party than he could inflict upon them, yet he would not leave off assaulting them, insomuch that there were continual sallies made one against the other, as well as darts thrown at one another, and the temple was defiled everywhere with murders. But now the tyrant Simon, son of Gioras, whom the people had invited in, out of the hopes they had of his assistance in the great distresses they were in, having in his power the upper city and a great part of the lower, did now make more vehement assaults upon John and his party, because they were fought against from above also. Yet he was beneath their situation when he attacked them, as they were beneath the attacks of the others above them, whereby it came to pass that john did both receive and inflict great damage and that easily as he was fought against on both sides and the same advantage that eleazar and his party had over him since he was beneath them the same advantage he by his higher situation over simon on which account he easily repelled the attacks that were made from beneath by the weapons thrown from their hands only but was obliged to repel those that threw their darts from the temple above him by his engines of war For he had such engines as threw darts and javelins and stones, and that in no small number, by which he did not only defend himself from such as fought against him, but slew moreover many of the priests, as they were about their sacred ministrations. For notwithstanding, these men were mad with all sorts of impiety, yet they did still admit those that desired to offer their sacrifices, although they took care to search the people of their own country beforehand, and both suspected and watched them. While they were not so much afraid of strangers, who, although they had gotten leave of them, how cruel soever they were to come into that court, were yet often destroyed by this sedition. For those darts that were thrown by the engines came with that force, that they went over all the buildings, and reached as far as the altar, and the temple itself, and fell upon the priests, and those that were about the sacred offices. Insomuch that many persons who came thither with great zeal from the ends of the earth, to offer sacrifices at this celebrated place, which was esteemed holy by all mankind, fell down before their own sacrifices themselves, and sprinkled that altar, which was venerable among all men, both Greeks and barbarians, with their own blood, till the dead bodies of strangers were mingled together with those of their own country, and those of profane persons with those of the priests, and the blood of all sorts of dead carcasses stood in lakes in the holy courts themselves. And now, O most wretched most wretched city, what misery so great as didst thou suffer from the Romans when they came to purify thee from thy intestinal hatred? For thou couldst no longer a place fit for God, nor couldst thou long continue in being after thou had been a sepulchre for the bodies of thy own people, and hast made the holy house itself a burying place in this civil war of thine. Yet mayst thou go again grow better, if perchance thou wilt hereafter appease the anger of that God who is the author of thy destruction." but I must restrain myself from these passions by the rules of history, since this is not a proper time for domestical lamentations, but for historical narrations. I therefore return to the operations that follow in this sedition. And now there were three treacherous factions in the city, the one parted from the other, Eleazar and his party, that kept the sacred first fruits, and came against John in their cups. Those that were with John plundered the populace, and went out with zeal against Simon. This Simon had his supply of provisions from the city in opposition to the seditious. When therefore John was assaulted on both sides he made his men turn about throwing his darts upon those citizens that came up against him from the cloisters he had in his possession while he opposed those that attacked him from the temple by his engines of war and if at any time he was freed from those that were above him which happened frequently from there being drunk and tired he sallied out with a great number upon Simon and his party and this he did always in such parts of the city as he could come at till he set on fire those houses that were full of corn and of all other provisions. The same thing was done by Simon, when upon the others' retreat he attacked the city also, as if they had on purpose done it to serve the Romans, by destroying what the city had laid up against the siege, and by thus cutting off the nerves of their own power. Accordingly it came to pass that all the places that were about the temple were burnt down, and were become an intermediate desert space, ready for fighting on both sides of it, and that almost all that corn was burnt, which would have been sufficient for a siege of many years. So they were taken by the means of the famine, which it was impossible they should have been, unless they had thus prepared the way for it by this procedure. And now the city was engaged in war on all sides. From those treacherous crowds of wicked men, the people of the city between them, were like a great body torn in pieces. The aged men and the women were in such distress by their internal calamities, that they wished for the Romans And earnestly hoped for an external war in order that their delivery from their domestical miseries. The citizens themselves were under a terrible consternation and fear, nor had they any opportunity of taking counsel and of changing their conduct. Nor were there any hopes of coming to an agreement with their enemies, nor could such as had a mind flee away, for guards were set at all places, and the heads of the robbers, although they were seditious one against the other in these respects, yet they did agree in killing those that were for peace with the Romans." or were suspected of an inclination to desert them as their common enemies. They agreed in nothing but this, to kill those that were innocent. The noise also of those who were fighting was incessant, both by day and by night. But the lamentations of those that mourned exceeded the other, nor was there ever any occasion to leave them off of their lamentations, because their calamities came perpetually one upon the other. Although the deep consternation they were in prevented their outward wailing, but being constrained by their fear to conceal their inward passions, they were inwardly tormented without daring to open their lips in groans. Nor was any regard paid to those that were still alive by their relations, nor was there any care taken of burial for those that were dead. The occasion of both which was this, that every one despaired of himself. For those that were not among the seditious had no great desires of anything, as expecting for certain that they should very soon be destroyed. But for the seditious themselves... They fought against each other, while they trod upon the dead bodies as they lay heaped one upon another, and taking up a mad rage from those dead bodies that were under their feet, became the fiercer thereupon. They, moreover, were still inventing some one or other that was pernicious against themselves, and when they had resolved upon anything, they executed it without mercy, and amended no method of torment or of barbarity. Nay, John abused the sacred materials and employed them in the construction of his engines of war, for the people and the priests had formerly determined to support the temple and raise the holy house twenty cubits higher. For King Agrippa had, at a very great expense and with very great pains, brought thither such materials as were proper for that pur- purpose, being pieces of timber very well worth seeing, both for their straightness and for their largeness. But the war coming on and interrupting the work, John had them cut and prepared for the building him towers, he finding them long enough to oppose from them those his adversaries that thought him from the temple that was above him. He also had them brought and erected behind the inner court over against the west end of the cloisters, where alone he could erect them, whereas the other sides of that court had so many steps as would not let them come nigh enough the cloisters. Thus did John hope to be too hard for his enemies by these engines constructed by his impiety, but God himself demonstrated that his pains would prove of no use to him by bringing the Romans upon him, before he had reared any of his towers. For Titus, when he had gotten together part of his forces about him, and had ordered the rest to meet him at Jerusalem, marched out of Caesarea. He had with him those three legions that had accompanied his father when he laid Judea waste. Together with that twelfth legion, which had been formerly beaten with Cestius, which legion, as it was otherwise remarkable for its valor, so did it march on now with greater alacrity to avenge themselves on the Jews as remembering what they had formerly suffered from them. Of these legions he ordered the fifth to meet him, by going through Emmaus, and the tenth to go up by Jericho. He also moved himself, together with the rests, besides whom marched those auxiliaries that came from the kings, being now more in number than before, together with a considerable number that came to his assistance from Syria. Those also that had been selected out of these four legions and sent with Musianus to Italy, had their places filled up out of these soldiers that came out of Egypt with Titus, who were 2,000 men, chosen out of the armies of Alexandria. There followed him also 3,000 drawn from those that guarded the river Euphrates. Also there came Tiberius Alexander, who was a friend of his, most valuable, both for his goodwill to him and for his prudence. He had formerly been governor of Alexandria, but was now thought worthy to be general of the army under Titus. The reason of this was that he had been the first to encourage Vespasian very lately to accept that his new dominion and joined him, joined himself to him with great fidelity when things were uncertain and fortune had not been declared for him. He also followed Titus as a counselor, very useful to him in this war, both by his age and skill in such affairs. Chapter 2 How Titus Marched to Jerusalem and how he was in danger as he was taking a view of the city at the place where he pitched his camp. Now as Titus was upon his march into the enemy's country, the auxiliaries that were sent by the king's marched first, having all the other auxiliaries with them, after whom followed those that were to prepare the roads and measure out the camp. Then came the commander's baggage, and after that the other soldiers, who were completely armed to support them. Then came Titus himself, having with him another select body, then came the pikemen, after whom came the horse belonging to that legion. All these came before the engines, and after these engines came the tribunes and the leaders of the cohorts, with their select bodies, and after these came the ensigns, with the eagle, and before those ensigns came the trumpeters belonging to them. Next to these came the main body of the army and their ranks, every rank being six deep. The servants belonging to every legion came after these, and before the last of their baggage. The mercenaries came last and those that guarded them brought up the rear. Now Titus, according to the Roman usage, went in the front of the army after a decent manner, and marched through Samaria to Gophna, a city that had been formerly taken by his father, and was then garrisoned by Roman soldiers. And when he had lodged there one night, he marched on in the morning, and when he had gone as far as a day's march, he pitched his camp at that valley which the Jews in their own tug call the Valley of Thorns, near a certain village called Gabos South, which signifies the hill of Saul, being distant from Jerusalem about thirty furlongs. There it was that he chose out six hundred select horsemen and went to take a view of the city, to observe what strength it was of, and how courageous the Jews were, whether, when they saw him, and before they came to a direct battle, they would be affrighted and submit. For he had been informed what was really true, that the people who were fallen under the power of the seditious and the robbers were greatly desirous of peace, but being too weak to rise up against the rest, they lay still. Now, so long as he rode along the straight road which led to the wall of the city, nobody appeared out of the gates. But when he went out of that road and declined towards the tower of Pasiphanes and led the band of horsemen obliquely, an immense number of the Jews leapt out suddenly at the towers called Women's Towers through that gate which was over against the monuments of Queen Helena and intercepted his horse. And standing directly opposite to those that still ran along the road, Hindered them from joining those that had declined out of it. They intercepted Titus also with a few other. Now it was here impossible for him to go forward because all the places had trenches dug in them from the wall to preserve the gardens round about and were full of gardens obliquely situated and of many hedges. And to return back to his own men he saw it was also impossible by reason of the multitude of the enemies that lay between them, many of whom did not so much as know that the king was in any danger, but supposed him still among the men. So he perceived that his preservation must be wholly owning to his own courage, and turned his horse about, and cried out aloud to those that were about him to follow him, and ran with violence into the midst of his enemies, in order to force his way through them to his own men. And hence we may principally learn that both the successive wars and the dangers that kings are in, under the providence of God, for while such a number of darts were thrown at Titus, when he had neither his headpiece on nor his breastplate, for, as I told you, He went out not to fight, but to view the city. None of them touched his body, but went aside without hurting him, as if all of them missed him on purpose, only to make a noise as they passed by him. So he diverted those perpetually with his sword that came on his side, and overturned many of those that directly met him, and made his horse ride over those that were overthrown. The enemy indeed made a shout at the boldness of Caesar, and exhorted one another to rush upon him. Yet these against whom he marched did fly away, and go off from him in great numbers, while those that were in the same danger with him kept up close to him, though they were wounded both on their backs and on their sides, for they had each of them but this one hope of escaping, if they could assist Titus in opening himself away, that he might not be encompassed round by his enemies before he got away from them. Now there were two of those that were with him, but at some distance, the one of which the enemy compassed round and slew him with their darts, and his horse also. But the other they slew as he leapt down from his horse and carried off his horse with them. But Titus escaped with the rest and came safe to the camp. So this success of the Jews' first attack raised their minds, and gave them an ill-grounded hope, for the short inclination of fortune on their side made them very courageous for the future. But now, as soon as that legion that had been at Emmaus was joined to Caesar at night, he removed thence when it was day and came to a place called Siopus, from whence The city had already to be seen, and a plain view might be taken of the great temple. Accordingly, this place on the north quarter of the city, joining thereto, was a plain, and very properly named Scopus the Prospect, and was no more than seven furlongs distant from it. It was here that Titus ordered a camp to be fortified for two legions that were to be together, but ordered another camp to be fortified at three furlongs farther distance behind them for the fifth legion, For he thought that by marching in the night, they might be tired and might deserve to be covered from the enemy, and with less fear might fortify themselves. And as these were now beginning to build, the tenth legion, who came through Jericho, was already come to the place, where a certain party of armed men had formerly lain to guard that pass into the city, and had been taken before by Vespasian. These legions had orders to encamp at the distance of six furlongs from Jerusalem, at the mount called the Mount of Olives, which lies over against the city on the east side, and is parted from it by a deep valley, interposed between them, which is named Cedron. Now when hitherto the several parties in the city had been dashing one against another perpetually, this foreign war now suddenly come upon them, after a violent manner, put the first stop to their contentions, one against the another. And as the seditious now saw with astonishment the Romans pitching three several camps, they began to think of an awkward sort of concord, and said one to another, what do we hear, and what do we mean, when we suffer three fortified walls to be built in, to coop us in, that we shall not be able to breathe freely, while the enemy is securely building a kind of city in opposition to us, and while we sit still within our own walls and become spectators only of what they are doing, with our hands idle and our armor laid by, as if they were about somewhat f- that was for our good and advantage? We are, it seems, so did they cry out, only courageous against ourselves, while the Romans are likely to gain the city without bloodshed by our sedition. Thus did they encourage one another when they were gotten together, and took their armor immediately, and ran out upon the tenth legion, and fell upon the Romans with great eagerness, and with a prodigious shout, as if they were fortifying as they were fortifying their camp. These Romans were caught in different parties, and this in order to perform their several works, and that on that account had in great measure laid aside their arms, For they thought the Jews would not have ventured to make sally upon them. And had they been disposed to do so, they supposed their sedition would have distracted them. So they were put into disorder unexpectedly. When some of them left their works, they were about, and immediately marched off, while many ran to their arms, but were smitten and slain before they could turn back upon the enemy. The Jews became still more and more in number, as encouraged by the good success of those that first made the attack. And while they had such good fortune, They seemed both to themselves and to the enemy to be many more than they really were. The disorderly way of their fighting at first put the Romans also to a stand, who had been constantly used to fight skillfully in good order, and keeping their ranks, and obeying the orders that were given them, for which reason the Romans were caught unexpectedly, and were obliged to give way to the assaults that were made upon them. Now when these Romans were overtaken and turned back upon the Jews, they put a stop to their career. Yet when they did not take care enough of themselves through the vehemency of their pursuit, they were wounded by them. But as still more and more Jews sallied out of the city, the Romans were at length brought into confusion and put to fight and ran away from their camp. Nay, things looked as though the entire legion would have been in danger unless Titus had been informed of the case they were in and sent them succours immediately. So he reproached them for their cowardice and brought those back that were running away and fell himself upon the Jews on their flank with those select troops that were with him, and slew a considerable number, and wounded more of them, and put them all to flight, and made them run away hastily down the valley. Now as these Jews suffered greatly in the declivity of the valley, so when they were gotten over it, they turned about, and stood over against the Romans, having the valley between them, and there fought with them. Thus they did continue the fight till noon, but when it was already a little afternoon, Titus sent those that came to the assistance assistance of the Romans with him, and those that belonged to the cohorts, prevent the Jews from making any more sallies, and then sent the rest of the legion to the upper part of the mountain to fortify their camp. This march of the Romans seemed to the Jews to be a flight, and as the watchman who was placed upon the wall gave a signal by shaking his garment, there came out a fresh multitude of Jews, and that with such mighty violence that one might compare it to the running of the most terrible wild beasts. To say the truth, none of those that opposed them could sustain the fury with which they made their attacks. But as if they had been cast out of an engine, they break the enemy's ranks to pieces who were put to flight and ran away to the mountain, none but Titus himself and a few others with him being left in the midst of the acclivity. Now these others who were his friends despised the danger they were in and were ashamed to leave their general, earnestly exhorting that him to give, away, give way to these Jews that are fond of dying and not to run into such dangers before those that ought to stay before him. To consider what his fortune was and not by supplying the place of a common soldier. To venture to turn back upon the enemy so suddenly, and this because he was general in the war and lord of the habitable earth, on whose preservation the public affairs do all depend. These persuasions Titus seemed not so much as to hear, but opposed those that ran upon him and smote them on the face, and when he had forced them to go back, he slew them. He also fell upon great numbers as they marched down the hill and thrust them forward, While those men were so amazed at his courage and his strength that they could not fly directly to the city, but declined from him on both sides and pressed after those that fled up the hill, yet he did still fall upon their flank and put a stop to their fury. In the meantime, a disorder and a terror fell upon those that were fortifying their camp at the top of the hill upon seeing those beneath them running away, insomuch that the whole legion was dispersed, while they thought that the sallies of the Jews upon them were plainly insupportable, and that Titus was himself put to flight, because they took it for granted that, if he had stayed, the rest would have never fled for it. Thus they were encompassed on every side by a kind of panic fear, and some dispersed themselves one way and some another, till certain of them saw their general in the very midst of an action, and being under great concern for him, they loudly proclaimed the danger he was in to the entire legion, and now shame made them turn back, and they reproached one another that they did worse than run away by deserting Caesar." So they used their utmost force against the Jews, and declining from the straight declivity, they drove them on heaps into the bottom of the valley. Then did the Jews turn about and fight them. But as they were themselves retiring, and now, because the Romans had the advantage of the ground and were above the Jews, they drove them all into the valley. Titus also pressed upon those that were near him, and sent the legion again to fortify their camp. And while he and those that were with him before opposed the enemy, and kept them from doing further mischief, mischief, Insomuch that, if I may be allowed neither to add anything out of flattery, or to diminish anything out of envy, but to speak the plain truth, Caesar did twice deliver that entire legion when it was in jeopardy, and gave them a quiet opportunity of fortifying their camp. Chapter 3. How the sedition was again revived within Jerusalem, and yet the Jews contrived snares for the Romans how Titus also threatened his soldiers for their ungovernable rashness. As now the war abroad ceased for a while, the sedition within was revived, and on the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was now come, it being the fourteenth day of the month of Xanthicus or Nisan, when it is believed the Jews were first freed from the Egyptians, Eleazar and his party opened the gates of this innermost court of the temple and admitted such as the people who were desirous to worship God into it. But John made use of this festival as a cloak for his treacherous designs, and armed the most inconsiderable part of his own party, the greater part of whom were not purified, with weapons concealed under their garments, and sent them with great zeal into the temple in order to seize upon it, which armed men, when they were gotten in, threw their garments away and presently appeared in their armor, upon which there was a very great disorder and disturbance about the holy house." While the people, who had no concern in the sedition, supposed that this assault was made against all without distinction, as the zealots thought it was made against themselves only. So these left off guarding the gates any longer, and leapt down from their battlements before they came to an engagement, and fled away into the subterranean caverns of the temple, while the people that stood trembling at the altar and about the holy house were rolled on heaps together and trampled upon, and were beaten both with wooden and iron weapons without mercy. Such also, as had differences with others, slew many persons that were quiet, out of their own private enmity and hatred, as if they were opposite to the seditious. And all those that had formerly offended any of these plotters were now known, and were now led away to the slaughter. And when they had done abundance of horrid mischief to the guiltless, they granted a truce to the guilty, and let those go off that came cut out of the caverns. These followers of John's also did now seize upon this inner temple, and upon all the warlike engines therein, and then ventured to oppose Simon, and thus that sedition, which had been divided into three factions, was now reduced to two. But Titus, intending to pitch his camp nearer to the city than Scopus, placed as many of his choice horsemen and footmen as he thought sufficient opposite to the Jews, to prevent their sallying out upon them, while he gave orders for the whole army to level the distance as far as the wall of the city. So they threw down all the hedges and walls which the inhabitants had made about their gardens and groves of trees, and cut down all the fruit trees that lay between them and the wall of the city, and filled up all the hollow places and chasms, and demolished the rocky precipices with iron instruments, and thereby made all the place level from Scopus to Herod's monuments, which adjoined to the pool called the Serpent's Pool. Now at this very time the Jews contrived the following stratagem against the Romans. The bolder sort of the seditious went out of the t- at the towers, called the Women's Towers, as if they had been ejected out of the city by those who were for peace, and rambled about as if they were afraid of being assaulted by the Romans, and were in fear of one another. While those that stood upon the wall and seemed to be, by, be of the people's side cried out aloud for peace, and entreated that they might have security for their lives given them, and called for the Romans, promising to open the gates to them, as they cried out after that manner. They threw stones at their own people as though they would drive them away from the gates. These also pretended that they were excluded by force and that they petitioned those that were within to let them in. And rushing upon the Romans perpetually with violence, they then came back and seemed to be in great disorder. Now the Roman soldiers thought this cunning stratagem of theirs was to be believed real, and thinking they had the one party under their power and could punish them as they pleased, and hoping that the other party would open their gates to them, Set to the execution of their designs accordingly. But for Titus himself, he had this surprising conduct of the Jews in suspicion, for whereas he had invited them to come to terms of accommodation by Josephus, but one day before, he could then receive no civil answer from them, so he ordered the soldiers to stay where they were. However, some of them that were set in the front of the works prevented him, and catching up their arms ran to the gates, whereupon those that seemed to have been ejected at the first retired. But as soon as the soldiers were gotten between the towers on each side of the gate, the Jews ran out and encompassed them round, and fell upon them behind, while that multitude which stood upon the wall threw a heap of stones and darts of all kinds at them, insomuch that they slew a considerable number, and wounded many more. For it was not easy for the Romans to escape, by reason those behind them pressed them forward, besides which the shame they were under for being mistaken, and the fear they were in of their commanders... "...engage them to persevere in their mistake. Wherefore they fought with their spears a great while, and received many blows from the Jews, though indeed they gave them as many blows again, and at last repelled those that had compassed them about, while the Jews pursued them as they retired, and followed them, and threw darts at them as far as the monuments of Queen Helena." After this these Jews, without keeping any decorum, grew insolent upon their good fortune, and jested upon the Romans for being deluded by the trick, they bade put upon them, and making a noise with beating of their shields and leapt for gladness, and made joyful exclamations, while these soldiers were received with threatenings by their officers, and with indignation by Caesar himself, who spake to them thus: quote, These Jews, who are only conducted by their madness, do everything with care and circumspection. They contrive stratagems and lay ambushes, and fortune gives success to their stratagems, because they are obedient, and preserve their goodwill and fidelity to one another. While the Romans, to whom fortune uses to be ever subservient by reason of their good order and ready submission to their commanders, have now had ill success by their contrary behavior, and not by being able to restrain their hands from action, they have been caught. And that which is the most to their reproach, they have gone on without their commanders in the very presence of Caesar. Truly, says Titus, the laws of war cannot but groan heavily, as will my father also himself, when he shall be informed of this wind that hapeth... Hath been given us, since he who is grown old in wars did never make so great a mistake. Our laws of war do also ever inflict capital punishment on those that in the least break into good order, while at this time they have seen an entire army run into disorder. However, those that have been so insolent shall be made immediately sensible, and even they who conquer among the Romans without orders for fighting are to be under disgrace. When Titus had enlarged upon this matter before the commanders, it appeared evident that he would execute the law against all those that were concerned. So these soldiers' minds sunk down in despair, and as expecting to be put to death, and not justly and quickly. However, the other legions came round about Titus, and entreated his favor to these their fellow soldiers, and made supplication to him that he would pardon the rashness of a few, on account of the better obedience of all the rest, and promised for them that they should make amends for their present faults, by their more v- virtuous behavior from the time to come. For the time to come. So Caesar complied with their desires, and with what prudence dictated to him also, for he esteemed it fit to punish single persons by real executions, but that the punishment of great multitudes should proceed no further than reproofs. So he was reconciled to the soldiers, but gave him them a special charge to act more wisely for the future, and he considered himself How he might be even with the Jews for their stratagem. And now, when the space between the Romans and the wall had been leveled, which was done in four days, and as he was desirous to bring the baggage of the army, with the rest of the multitude that followed him, safely to the camp, he set the strongest part of his army over against that wall which lay on the north quarter of the city, and over against the western part of it, and made his army seven deep, with the footmen placed before them, and the horsemen behind them, and each of the last in three ranks. Whilst the archers stood in the midst in seven ranks. And now, as the Jews were prohibited by so great a body of men from making sallies upon the Romans, both beasts that bear the burdens and belong to the three legions and the rest of the multitude, marched on without any fear. But as for Titus himself, he was, he was but about two furlongs distant from the wall. At that part of it where was the corner, and over against that tower, which was called Saphenus, At which tower the compass of the wall belonging to the north bended, and extended itself over against the west. But the other part of the army fortified itself at the tower called Hippicus, and was distant, in like manner, by two furlongs from the city. However, the tenth legion continued in its own place upon the Mount of Olives. Chapter 4 The Description of Jerusalem. The city of Jerusalem was fortified with three walls on such parts as were not encompassed with unpassable valleys. In such places it had but one wall. The city was built upon two hills, which are opposite to one another, and have a valley to divide them asunder, at which valley the corresponding rows of houses on both hills end. Of these hills, that which contains the upper city is much higher, and in length more direct. Accordingly, it was called the Citadel by King David. He was the father of that Solomon who built this temple at the first, but it is by us called the Upper Marketplace. But the other hill, which was called Acre, and sustains the lower city, is of the shape of a moon when she is horned. Over against this there was a third hill, but naturally lower than Acre, and parted formerly from the other by a broad valley. However, in those times when the Asmoneans reigned, they filled up that valley with earth, and had a mind to join the city to the temple. Then they took off the part of the height of Acre, and reduced it to be of less elevation than it was before, that the temple might be superior to it. Now the valley of the cheesemongers, as it was called, was that which we told you before distinguished the hill of the upper city from that of the lower, extended as far as Siloam. For that is the name of a fountain which hath sweet water in it, and it is in great plenty also. But on the outsides, these hills are surrounded by deep valleys, and by reason of the precipices to them belonging on both sides, they are everywhere unpassable. Now of these three walls, the old one was hard to be taken, both by reason of the valleys and of that hill on which it was built, and which was above them. But besides that great advantage as to the place where they were situated, it was also built very strong, because David and Solomon, and the following kings, were very zealous about this work. Now that wall began on the north, at the tower called Hippicus, and extended as far as the Zistus, a place so called, and then joining to the council house, ended at the west cloister of the temple. But if we go the other way westward, it began at the same place and extended through a place called Bethso to the gate of the Essens, and after that it went southward, having its bending above the fountain Siloam, where it also bends again toward the east at Solomon's Pool and reaches as far as a certain place, which they called Offlas, where it was joined by the eastern cloister of the temple. The second wall took its beginning from the gate which they called Genaf, which began to the first wall. It only encompassed the northern quarter of the city and reached as far as the tower Antonia. The beginning of the third wall was at the tower Hippicus, whence it reached as far as the north quarter of the city, and the tower Cephinus, and then was so far extended till it came over against the monuments of Helena, which Helena was queen of Adiabene, the daughter of Isates. It then extended further to a great length, and passed by the sepulchral caverns of the kings, and bent again at the tower of the corner, at the monument which is called Monument of the Fuller, and joined the old wall at the valley, called the Valley of Cedron, It was Agrippa who encompassed the parts and added to the old city with this wall, which had been all naked before. For as the city grew more populous, it gradually crept beyond its old limits. And those parts of it that stood northward of the temple and joined that hill to the city made it considerably larger and occasioned that hill, which is in number the fourth and is called Bazitha to be inhabited also. It lies over against the tower Antonia, but is divided from it by a deep valley, which was dug on purpose, that in order to hinder the foundations of the tower of Antonia from joining to this hill, and thereby affording an opportunity for getting to it with ease, and hindering the security that arose from its superior elevation, for which reason also that depth of the ditch made the elevation of the towers more remarkable. This new-built part of the city was called Basitha in our language, which, if interpreted in the Grecian language may be called the new city. Since, therefore, its inhabitants stood in need of a covering, the father of the present king, and of the same name with him, Agrippa, began that wall we spoke of. But he left off building it when he had only laid the foundations, out of the fear he was in of Claudius Caesar, lest he should suspect that so strong a wall was built in order to make some innovation in public affairs. For the city could no way have been taken if that wall had been finished in the manner it was begun." as its parts were connected together by stones twenty cubits long and ten cubits broad, which could never have been easily undermined by any iron tools or shaken by any engines. The wall was, however, ten cubits wide, and it probably have had a height greater than that, had not his zeal who began it been hindered from exerting itself. After this it was erected with great diligence by the Jews, as high as twenty cubits, above which it had battlements of two cubits, and turrets of three cubits altitude, insomuch that the entire altitude extended as far as twenty-five cubits. Now the towers that were upon it were twenty cubits in breadth, twenty cubits in height. They were square and solid, as was the wall itself, wherein the niceness of the joints and the beauty of the stones there were no way inferior to those of the holy house itself. Above this solid altitude of the towers, which was twenty cubits, there were rooms of great magnificence, and over them upper rooms and cisterns to receive rain water. They were many in number, and the steps by which you ascended up to them were every one broad. Of these towers then the third wall had ninety, and the spaces between them were each two hundred cubits. But in the middle wall were forty towers, and the old wall was parted into sixty, while the whole compass of the city was thirty-three furlongs. Now the third wall was all of it wonderful, yet was the tower Cephinus elevated above it at the northwest corner, And there Titus pitched his own tent, for being seventy cubits high, it both afforded a prospect of Arabia at sunrising, as well it did of the utmost limits of the Hebrew possessions at the sea westward. Moreover, it was an octagon, and over against it was the tower Hippolycus, and hard by two others were erected by King Herod in the old wall. These were for largeness, beauty, and strength, beyond all that were in the habitable earth, for besides the magnanimity of its nature and the magnificence towards the city on other occasions, he built these after such an extraordinary manner to gratify his own private affections and dedicated these towers to the memory of those three persons who had been the dearest to him and from whom he named them. They were his brother, his friend, and his wife. His wife he had slain out of his love and jealousy, as we have already related. The other two he lost in war as they were courageously fighting, Hippicus, so named from his friend, was square. Its length and breadth were each twenty-five cubits, its height thirty cubits, and it had no vacuity in it. Over this solid building, which was composed of great stones united together, there was a reservoir twenty cubits deep, over which there was a house of two stories, whose height was twenty-five cubits, and divided into several parts, over which were battlements of two cubits, turrets all around of three cubits, insomuch that the entire height added together amounted Four score cubits, the second tower, which he named from his brother Vasalus, had its breadth and height equal, each of them forty cubits, over which was its solid height of forty cubits, over which a cloister went round about whose height was ten cubits, and it was covered from enemies by breastworks and bulwarks. There was also built over that cloister another tower, parted into magnificent rooms and a place for bathing, so that this tower wanted nothing that might make it appear to be a royal palace. It was also adorned with battlements and turrets, more than was the foregoing, and the entire altitude was about ninety cubits. The appearance of it resembled the Tower of Ferris, which exhibited a fire to such as sailed to Alexandria, but was much larger than it encompassed. This was now converted to a house, wherein Simon exercised his tyrannical authority. The third tower was Mariamne, for for that was his queen's name. It was solid as high as twenty cubits. Its breadth and its length were twenty cubits, and were equal to each other. Its upper buildings were more magnificent and had greater variety than the other towers had, for the king thought it most proper for him to adorn that which was denominated from his wife better than those denominated from men, as they, those were built stronger than this that bore his wife's name. The entire height of this tower was fifty cubits. Now as these towers were very tall, and appeared much taller by the place on which they stood, for that very old western wall, wherein they were built on a high wall, was itself a kind of elevation that was still thirty cubits taller, over which were the towers situated, and thereby were made much higher to appearance. The largeness also of the stones was wonderful, for they were not made of common small stones, nor of such large stones only as men could carry, but were of white marble cut out of the rock, Each stone was twenty cubits in length, and ten in breadth, and five in depth. They were so exactly united to one another, that each tower looked like one entire rock of stone, so growing naturally, and afterward cut by the hand of the artificers into their present shape and corners. So little or not at all did their joints or connection appear. Though as these towers were themselves on the north side of the wall, the king had a palace inwardly thereto adjoined, which exceeds all my ability to describe it for it was so very curious as to want no cost nor skill in its construction, but was entirely walled about to the height of thirty cubits, and was adorned with towers at equal distances, and with large bedchambers that would contain beds for a hundred guests apiece, in which the variety of the stones is not to be expressed, for a large quantity of those that were rare of that kind was collected together. Their roofs were also wonderful, both for the length of the beams and the splendor of their ornaments." The number of the rooms was also very great, and the variety of the figures that were about them was prodigious. Their furniture was complete, and the greatest part of the vessels that were put in them was of silver and gold. There were besides many porticos, one beyond another, round about, and in each of those porticos curious pillars. Yet all were the courts yet were all the courts that were exposed to the air everywhere green. There were, moreover, several groves of trees, long and long walks through them, with deep canals and cisterns that in several parts were filled with brazen statues, through which the water ran out. There were without many dove courts of tame pigeons about the canals. But indeed it is not possible to give a complete description of these palaces, and the very remembrance of them is a torment to one, as putting one in mind what vastly rich buildings that fire was kindled by the robbers hath consumed, for these were not burnt by the Romans, but by these internal plotters, as we have already related in the beginning of their rebellion. That fire began at the tower of Antonia and went on to the palaces and consumed the upper parts of the three towers themselves.